So welcome everybody to another episode of RM Sotheby's Car Show. Now at the moment that makes complete sense if you're watching this because you can probably see a Ferrari Formula One car behind me and we're going to come back to that in a little bit. We are in a room, not a very big room, in the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in Geneva. And normally when we do these podcasts from an auction, I'm talking to you from a car auction uh, and I would be surrounded by 50 lovely cars. But this is not a car auction. Despite the uh, Ferrari uh, that is behind me right now, um, we are in a quite a small room and actually we are just surrounded by gems, jewellery and watches and that really is the emphasis of what's going on here today uh, and in fact out in the cor corridor there's lots of handbags that my wife would like but can't afford. Uh, so Peter, why don't you just explain a little bit more about why we are sitting in a room in Geneva surrounded by jewellery and other things? Well, um, <laughs> is it good afternoon or good morning? I'm not quite sure. But, you, can pick, uh, you can pick. Well, we've just come um, very recently from our London auction, which was a, a great success. We had lots of uh, cars for sale there, but we've seen in the, in the last few years a real um, lust in the market for recent era Formula One cars, particularly the very, very best of their type. And the car we have behind us is very much in that category, being a um, 2003 World Championship year winning Ferrari. The model is uh, an F1, 2003 GA and the GA stands for Gianni Agnelli as a tribute to uh, the man obviously behind Fiat and uh, Ferrari. Yeah, he died that year, right? He died that year, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, but the reason it's here and uh, it's not something we can put on our wrist is we are here um, as part of the Sotheby's luxury group. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about the background to that, but um, we do enjoy this wonderful partnership working with Sotheby's, but we come under the luxury umbrella and uh, we described that recently as everything one can um, wear, drink or drive. And what's behind us has four wheels, it has a steering wheel over there and I consider it something that we could drive, but not quite as well as Michael Schumacher, who's the man that won uh, five uh, races he in did. this very car. In so seven world, seven world championships, uh, lots of races, lots of race wins under his belt. 2003 was a, a terrifically dominant year for Ferrari and he won five races and a couple of other podiums in this actual car and I think one of our colleagues, Gus, he did a calculation I think that he determined that Schumacher won 60, more than 60% of the points. 70% like of the points that went towards winning the championship that year were won in that actual car. Having said that, more, also very significantly, he didn't get in this car until the fifth race. So the beginning right. of the season, he wasn't in this car. He was still had the previous car. This car wasn't ready. So that just makes those, those wins and that dominance even more significant for that year. But um, yeah, so from the point of view of it being here in Geneva, in the Mandarin Oriental Hotel, and we're gonna be uh, chatting with our colleague from Sotheby's, Josh Pullen, mm -hmm. uh, in a moment, the, um, the sense we have is that we feel that this gives this car absolute focus. It has its own podium here behind us. Um, and we think the audience for this car is not only within the traditional car collecting community, we feel that it's in a much broader 
luxury or you know trophy community and uh, this car's won lots of trophies and we think it could be a, a trophy for its new owner. And well, I think that segues perfectly into bringing uh, Josh Pullen into this conversation and Josh is the head of the global luxury division. You've occasionally come to our sales in recent times and it's been lovely to have you there. Um, we've now parachuted ourselves into one, one, one of um, you know, your, your tr traditional space, shall we say. And um, can you just say a little bit more about uh, why we as RM Sotheby's are, are here um, making a nuisance of ourselves uh, at this lovely auction? Absolutely. It's great to be here with you guys and, and I love the show uh, and uh, listen along on Spotify um, regularly. So it's, Very it's, good. It's great. Tell all your friends. Exactly. <laughs> A little plug. Um, but no, I, I think you know, ultimately, as Peter was saying, I think these are the kind of exceptional items which really can sort of um, elevate out of a traditional context and we believe that the context really matters uh, to tell the story and really position these kind of um, amazing items uh, in a different context and, and present to a different audience um, that, uh, that fantastic story. So you know, as, as, I'm, as we're sitting here, of course we have the Ferrari here but over to the left there is a collection of uh, blue diamonds from De Beers, it's about 70 million dollars worth uh, of stones that we'll offer over the next 12 months. Um, and I think that's a, it's a nice contrast with, uh, with the Schumacher F1 here. Um, you know, to sort of to think about where RM uh, and the automotive category fits within luxury though, I think is, is a great question. Uh, when you think about luxury um, and our division, we, we kind of have a couple of different things happening. I would say we have our traditional categories like jewelry and watches and wine. Uh, so very established, very uh, important and sort of well understood luxury categories. Then we've got a bunch of really explosive growth categories that we're seeing like spirits, so whiskey, incredibly fast and growing market, uh, sneakers, sports memorabilia and uh, things like handbags uh, as well fit into that. Um, and, then, uh, and then we have obviously um, our recent uh, you know, uh, working closer together in the automotive space and also concierge which is our real, real estate auction business. You've mentioned a couple of categories that have recently gone yeah. a little bit crazy uh, and of course whiskey is not a new invention is it? Right. Um, and, uh, and I guess in neither is sort of you know sports memorabilia and what we have here is a very large item of sports memorabilia isn't it? A lot of people listening or watching may be aware of the Maradona soccer shirt, yes. the, the, the Hand of God shirt, which sold for $9 million. $9 million. Um, and the, there was a Michael Jordan vest that sold right. for a very considerable sum as well recently. Yeah, $10 million. Yeah. $10 million again. Which, I mean, we, we touched upon this earlier actually. I mean, this car is. In, in sort of in Swiss francs, we're sort of hoping between seven and ten. Mm -hmm. um, in in the car world, that's a very expensive car. Right. It's not often we come to an auction with a car more valuable. Obviously, there are cars more valuable, but you know it's right up there. Um, so perhaps that's actually quite good value for money. There's an awful lot of technology in there, isn't there? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's the story that people fall in love with. And yeah. so, yeah, if you think about the the Michael Jordan yeah. jersey, so game-worn jersey from um, the NBA Finals series um, and as I said sold for ten million dollars um, and I think that that's that's the kind of item which um, for yes there's basketball and sports collecting enthusiasts and then there are people that are looking for just the best possible example in any category 
Yeah. And I think that's where we're seeing that whether it's the Michael Jordan jersey, the Buzz Aldrin's you know, space-worn uh, jacket, a full Gorgosaurus, you know, it's like a terrifying dinosaur skeleton, um, or a Schumacher car, uh, people are coming to those categories because they're looking for the best of the best, um, and they fall in love with the story, and, and the, uh, you know, that resonates. And so I think that's why this makes sense in this, in this context here. I think, Josh, as well, when you, when you talk about the storytelling, it's absolutely right. Um, but it's also the way you buy it. And I think competing to buy something like this or the other items you've got here in that live auction environment where you've got the telephone desk, you've got the internet, and you've got people in the room, yeah. I do think that adds to the buzz, it adds to the excitement, it adds to the jeopardy, but also, who know? at that point, we don't know for sure who's going to buy it on the day, so we're all excited, we're, you know, on the starting grid before yeah. the auction, and once the flag goes down, there's the race to the finish. Who's going to end up owning mm. the car? Mm. And um, that's—I think—that's part of the storytelling. If you go back to your country house and have a dinner party, and there's a Schumacher Formula One car or some, whatever it may yeah. be from luxury or even traditional art, yeah. you have a story behind your purchase as well, which I think people really enjoy. Yeah, um, I think I think that's right. I think it's yeah, there's a real electricity whether it's in the sale room physically, or if you're on the telephone, you know, it's always a joy bidding for clients. It gets the, the heart rate up. Um, and then online is also, you know, it's unbelievably tense as you're you know, clicking, uh, clicking online with your laptop or on, on your mobile phone. Um, and I think you're right, that, that then becomes part of then the story for you and your connection to, to an item. Just going back to the, the other categories within the luxury division, I mean, where, have you seen a transition from a, what was predominantly a live auction environment to something that is now more online based? Yeah, very much. And I think some some of those are, we have purely online auctions. Um, so for example, the handbags are not being sold in a live auction, they're sold in a in an online format. Um, and and for, the, for some categories that makes sense because uh, clients are super comfortable coming in and participating in that format. Um, the other thing that we've seen is that uh, online um, has brought in a new generation mm -hmm. of, of clients. Um, and so, in fact, in categories like whiskey or sneakers, um, handbags and also watches, um, our biggest segments of clients are under the age of 40. Um, wow. And, and we, we see that the majority of those are coming in online because they feel comfortable to self-serve, they trust the technology aspect. Um, and, and we're starting to see that then obviously shift into our jewellery or, or watches categories and wine as well. Interesting Josh, when you mention trust, which of course is important when, whether you're spending um, a dollar, a Swiss franc or a pound or yep. 10 million, of course you want to know what you're getting for your money and when you're buying cars, older cars, they've, they've had a life, they've been restored several times, some better than others, some, some have a more traceable, trackable history than others, but when it comes to something like this, even if you're not a car expert, this car, it's over there, has the Ferrari Red Book certification, we've been driving it, or Mick Schumacher in fact, um, Michael Schumacher's son, he's been driving this car, this has been um, 
been through Ferrari Classic A in terms of its authenticity, but also its running condition, and many of the components on this are sort of within under 25% of their life cycle. So it's a, it's a very, very usable car. You can get in it to drive, and there's absolutely no questioning its authenticity, its history, which races Michael did in this car, chassis 229. Um, and I think for a buyer that's not used to buying cars, you add to that trust. We are quite often, and particularly on this podcast, we're doing these around, uh, quite often the subject matter is based around something of very high value. Sure. So the last, you know, n not so long ago, Peter and I went to the Mercedes Museum to do a podcast about the Uhlenhaut Coupe, and there it was, this car that was 135 million euros. But um, you were able to pull a number off your head, I think, as the average transaction price. I mean, typically we're around sort of Ten to fifteen thousand dollars. Right. So it's yeah. not all, and, and that includes wine and spirits, obviously. What? Which, which. So there's a big, there's a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, looking at the the grandeur of the the Sotheby's building in um, mm. in Bond Street, and the fact that there's so much fantastic stuff to see in there, free. Yeah. You know, it's galleries full of art and and all sorts of things that people mm. can just walk off the pavement and come yeah. and see. But people are intimidated about going Absolutely. in. Absolutely. Yeah. And 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 it's quite reassuring to know that. Okay, I'm not. I'm not making light of the fact that any purchase at ten or fifteen thousand pounds is significant. But it, we're not simply in the business of selling things that cost a million and one point five or ten. Yeah. yeah, that's. I think that's right. And you know, you read those. Those are the headlines that you see. Yeah. You know, with the with the Schumacher uh, or the or the De Beers Blues and those sorts of things. But. But uh, if you're collecting, um, then yeah, the brand is actually a lot more accessible um, than than you would than yeah. you would tend to think. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that's absolutely the case here. I mean, we have, as you said, the handbags, different audience, uh, much more approachable. The watches, you know, start. I think we have estimates as low as five thousand, and then we go all the way up to you know, seven hundred thousand for the the top Patek. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's the nice sort of spread in in the business. We've often talked as well, Josh, about community, mm. and I think it is that sense that you know you can work with someone, advise them, help them to acquire, um, and help them to sell. Of course, in so many different categories today, that you know over the years those categories have evolved. You know things like books, and as Peter mentioned, sporting memorabilia but perhaps sporting memorabilia in a more traditional sense. But that's obviously constantly evolving. We're talking about sp sporting memorabilia that's a few years old, rather than, let's say, a cricket bat from the 1920s. Right. So it's, it, it's all that, even though the, the time you mean, space... You mean a cricket bat that you would have used at school? <laughs> yeah, the one, one that you're going to get to see in a moment. Um, <laughs> but... No, the, the, the point is the time frame's condensed, and that's the same for us. I mean, if you look at yep. what we're selling, okay, we were just on the London to Brighton run at the weekend, and that's about as old as, that's the dawn of motoring. Yep. Um, so sort of cars from the late 1890s all the way through to 1904. Mm -hmm. But we're selling cars, uh, you know, all the way through to the 20, 2000s. In fact, mm. we sold a Bugatti Chiron from 2022. Mm. So we've, we're covering now the entire... Um, uh, era of, of motoring yep. from the dawn to the present moment however it's still quite a small space yeah um, but it's interesting how building that community you give them a bottle of wine have a good chat then they buy a watch I don't know it's, <laughs> it's, it's why the wine's the least expensive you're right but, and I think that evolution 
uh, or that sort of that time period that you're talking about in the automotive, you could apply that to the Art Deco jewels that we have here, all the way to the the Blue Diamond, which literally has just been polished, you know, a couple of months ago, um, or pocket watches, um, all the way up to you know the the FP Jean, uh, the eighth watch that he, that he ever made, which is one of the highlights of the sale. We all like watches, I know you do as well, Peter, mm. and you, you start to think about what it is, that fascination that continues with mechanical objects. We yeah. can all look at the time on our telephone, we don't need it, and it's the same with cars. I'm just sitting here, you know, the, the thing people love now is the glass back case in many cases, or cases you can open up and see the mechanical movement, yeah. the beauty of that, you know, watch it, the heart beating, the, the, the heart of the watch beating. But I'm looking at the steering wheel here now out of this very car, which is a hugely valuable part of it. You can't drive this car without that steering wheel, which is why um, it's kept separately. It's so valuable and most people keep them at the uh, Ferrari factory. But if you just look at the sort of, okay, while well you might say the engine and the transmission is the, is, is the heart of the car, it's not going to work without that steering wheel. And I've just been looking on the, at the blown up picture there. There's around 20 buttons on there and dials and knobs. And I think yeah. we could fairly yeah. say yeah. that's a, a steering wheel complication. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And they're even worse today. Yeah. But Max Verstappen has a hell but of a job. You know, you're driving at you know, 200 miles per hour with people all over your, your rear wing. And you're looking at um, and you're getting instructions in the radio saying, turn this up or turn that down or yeah. do this. And yeah. you struggle yeah. turning your radio. My wireless thermostat up and down. <laughs> <laughs> You're wireless, yes, yeah, quite. Um, I mean, let, let's briefly perhaps go back to the Ferrari. Peter, talk a little bit about Formula One cars. We, I mean, we've talked about the fact that uh, this car can be contextualised potentially as a piece of sculpture, as a piece of sports memorabilia. Um, but actually, if you want to buy this car and go and drive it, Ferrari make that possible for you, don't they? Absolutely. I, th I think the market for modern era Formula One cars has never been more active than it is at the moment. Um, we've sold, in fact, with Sotheby's, we sold um, Mercedes-Benz, I think, at the New York Contemporary Sale. Was that, was that? No, it was no, a Ferrari. It was the, we, we, we sold a, a Ferrari, yeah. yeah. But we also, sold, we also sold a Ferrari along with... But m my point being um, is the, the, the more contemporary Formula One cars, for many years weren't really considered usable and so many people would say well if I can't drive it what's the point of owning it that's changed hugely in the last 10 to 15 years firstly because uh, Ferrari have a program called Corsa Clienti which allows owners of these cars to keep the car at the factory it's maintained at the factory by Ferrari specialist technicians uh, you can take it out on the Fiorano test track which is in the video behind us that those aren't not watching can't see um, but have a look online on our website um, uh, or you can you can join their race series so they're teaching you how to drive they're maintaining your, your car it's making it obviously that doesn't come cheap but it does mean that you can emulate your hero now you're not going to get in and drive this car if anyone's watched old top gears and things like that when people have tried to drive formula one cars it is not easy because you've got to get no. all the components up to temperature. You, if you don't have any downforce... It takes downforce, about an hour to start one of those, right, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, if the, if, if the brakes aren't warm enough, hot enough, they're not going to work properly. The tyre's the same. You're not getting any mm. downforce. Mm. And, and, and really, for all of those reasons, mm. you can't just get in and drive this, but you can learn. Yeah. Um, and you need deep pockets, don't you? You, you need deep <laughs> pockets and you probably need to not be as heavy as me. Um, 
Uh, Josh, I think you were saying that you were looking at this with your son earlier, which is pretty cool. So yeah, he was. He's uh, he's seven, so you know he's probably he got a bit of about learning the right to size. do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so that's it. And uh, but not not only that, I think it's it's also been influenced by the TV audience of Formula mm -hmm. One, which is getting going more and more around the world. You know, th th there've been lots and lots of um, lo there has been lots of energy pushed into Formula One to make it a global sport. Um, more so in the US now than it's ever been. And that's meaning that these cars appeal to US buyers as well. Whereas perhaps 20 years ago, the, the number of um, Americans watching Formula One was probably far fewer than it is yeah, today. No, and that now means these cars do have global appeal, Japan, Asia, um, you know, the Middle East. So it's opened up the audience who will have seen Schumacher and, 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 and he mm -hmm. has become their hero. So I think there's a, you know, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of moving parts to it, but it's all going in, in, in a very interesting direction. And as we said earlier, when you think about people buying things, not just for investment, but as trophies. So you may have your Michael Schumacher vest in a glass cap. You may have your, your home where you entertain your friends and you've got a sporting memorabilia corner. And this is pride of place. And you've got other similar items. Why not? Helmets, I mean, for, for many years, people have collected, um, you know the helmets of their hero racing yep, drivers yep. and they are extremely valuable the big challenge with them is authentication of course but in this case it's not a challenge good point authentication so the the maradona shirt mm. where do you begin with the authentication of something like that so the, the 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 shirts are fascinating actually so you take the maradona shirt or the the jordan shirt and basically because those have come from moments of contemporary sporting history, there's enough footage from those, from those actual games for you to be able to do a photo match. And so if you, wow. so you can actually compare then the, you know, the threads uh, and the, the individual sort of pulls or discrepancies on a jersey to footage from the game. Uh, and, and so each that's fingerprint, forensic, isn't it, it? It really is, yeah. And so each sort of shirt has its own fingerprint in a way, um, wow. where the perforations are on the shirt, then where the numbers are stitched on. Um, are they, you know, are they spot on? Are they straight? Are they slightly, you know, slightly uh, altered because of a, a brush or a touch in the game? Uh, and then you can actually, really, with 100% certainty, say, hey, this is the jersey that was worn in that space. So it's amazing that you can actually, yeah. if, you're, if there's any ambiguity over the heritage, that you can actually do it from photo photography. Well, I guess as yeah. well that, that loops back to your earlier comment about people buying wine from their birth year for a whiskey or cognac. Um, I in fact recently gifted someone a bottle of wine from their, from their birth year, just as well they weren't too old. Uh, it was 2019. Very generous box, yeah. yeah well, I was trying to say that I'm was, a very generous yeah, person. That, but the it, point was the, is, it was the best six quid you ever spent, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, you, I, in fact I got them a case. <laughs> Um, but the point is that these, these things, uh, you know, whether it's wine or, or the shirts, the Michael Jordan shirt, Maradona and many other things, not only do they represent an era, do they, are they icons, on, on, but they represent a moment in time. You know, I was at the Monaco Grand Prix or I was in Monza when Schumacher won in this car or I was at the game. So that, yeah. and, and, and you know, lot, that opens it up. That opens it up to saying, actually, I, that moment in time for me was so special. Now I've made the money. I want to, you know, put that in a box and, and live with it because I loved it so much. And why not? Well, that's where you started, Peter. You said you can wear it, drive it, 
or drink it. And we mustn't forget when it comes to concierge, live in it. There you go. But I'm not going to say mm. that's too much of a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be sitting down in part two with uh, a, a watch expert and a gem and jewellery expert. And um, one of the watches that I had a sneak peek at uh, earlier is, is it turns out to be a pre-production uh, watch, which um, is meant to be gold, but it isn't. It's stainless steel that has been plated in gold. To see what it would look like. To see what it would look like, but it's got the right movement and everything else. And that's more valuable than were it solid gold because it's got that story behind it, which is interesting. So on that, uh, happy note, uh, uh, teasing what's going to come in part two. Um, I think we'll wrap it up there, and that's been a really interesting chat. So thank you, Peter, and especially to you, Josh. Great. Thank, thank you for you. joining us. And uh, the auction's tomorrow, right? Tomorrow. We start at 11 a.m. and then into uh, 4 p.m. So the car goes under the hammer tomorrow. And as far as everything else is concerned, that's not the car, the watch isn't. Are you feeling good? Feeling excited, yeah. It's great, yeah. To, great to be here. It's been unbelievably busy and uh, we're, uh, we're, we're looking forward to tomorrow. You need people with wallets to turn up. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. And we will be back very shortly with part two. Uh, hello, welcome everyone. Whether you're watching or listening, the RM Sotheby's Car Show podcast. We're sitting in a room with lots of jewellery and watches and all sorts of wonderful things. And we are joined um, by uh, two Sotheby's experts for this uh, luxury week sale here in Geneva. We've got Mr. Paul Redmayne, who is uh, a gems and jewellery expert based in the Sotheby's office in Dubai. And we've got Philip Demeter, uh, I make sure I have to say that right, um, who is uh, a watch specialist. And what we're going to get into a little bit now is... What about a, me? Oh, and well, uh, yes. Oh, <laughs> Lord. It's all about him. Uh, and we also have Peter Warman, who was with me in part one. And I, I'll apologise now to all the listeners that you've decided to join us for part two. Yes, as well. um, uh, uh, no, very nice to have you here, Peter. Thank you. And uh, Peter knows more about... Uh, well, you, you've got more money to spend on watches and gems than I have. So, 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 I mean, <laughs> you can sort of wade in. Gentlemen, we were talking a little bit with Josh Pullen in the first part of this show. We were talking about uh, how RM Sotheby's has become integrated into the luxury division of Sotheby's or far more integrated than it ever was. And we've bought a Ferrari Formula One car to this amazing sale. What place in, in, in your calendar does an auction like this have? I mean, I, I know that you do a lot of online selling as well, don't you? But in a live auction environment like we've got here in Geneva, that's a, a good opportunity for you to interact with your clients. And, and is this a sale where you are bringing potentially some of your biggest items that you will sell this year? Is this where a lot of them will come? Yeah, and, and certainly from my perspective. So I was, I was based in Hong Kong for 10 years. So with COVID, an opportunity like this is really to reconnect and re-engage with clients. Um, everyone flies in, you're here for a week, people are focused, um, and you get so many people flying in from all over the world, from the US, from Asia, from all over Europe. And so it's just reconnecting with, um, reconnecting with people. We have collectors coming down, um, and we have two auction seasons per year, two main auction seasons for the live seasons per year. And we, we bring out the big guns, um, and certainly Geneva is known for the big guns. Uh, and is that, the same, that exactly the same for you, Philip? Absolutely. We work six months for one day, 
for the, for the, for the day of the auction, right. basically. And here it, com it all comes together. And we definitely bring the nicest pieces. So you need a good day tomorrow, then? Six months' work. Six months' work, <laughs> yeah. Better should be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Paul, on, on, on the jewellery and, and, and gem side, let's just look at the last five or six years. Have you seen a change in, in what people are looking for? We've definitely we've seen um, contemporary jewellers, the, the demand from clients for contemporary jewellers has really gone up. Um, and we have, if I can bring one, um, one yes. particular uh, ring here. So this is, this is a 10 karat grey diamond. Um, and this is set, this is by a jeweler called Hemmler, who's a very old um, German jeweler. Um, and it's now run by Christian and his wife Yasmin. Um, Christian's in his uh, 40s. I don't think I'm doing him a disservice by saying he's in his 40s. Um, and You'll probably find he's 26. Yeah, but he's now yeah. horrible. He's, son, he's <laughs> just, deeply upset. I've, I've just lost the client. So, um, I can show it to them. And you well. have, there we go, Philip's got the, the nice white gloves on. There we go, everyone. Here, here. Oh, did something? No, no, it's still there. So I don't want to look at the price. Tag. So there's, there's a couple of this. things of interest about this ring. So number one is the material. So you see straight away it's black. Traditionally, we, we're used to seeing um, on the main thoroughfares of, uh, of London, New York, Paris, Geneva, you see white gold, you see platinum, you see rose gold, you see yellow gold. This is black. This is iron. So it's set in iron. Um, and Hemmler used these. Uh, we have a necklace here behind me, which is um, which is in bronze. Um, but he works with very different materials. Um, the inside of the ring is actually 18 karat white gold, so he's fused iron and 18 karat white gold. Is that, and I mean, that's, this is a bit of a technical question, is that difficult to do? Yeah. and Because iron's not easy to work yes, with. Yes, and it? it's difficult to work with bronze and to set that with gold as well, yeah. to, to fuse these, these materials. And then when you see the diamond, so the diamond is actually a fancy grey diamond. So diamonds come in all colours of the rainbow. Um, they're not just white diamonds, they're not just, we hear a lot at auction about white diamonds, pink diamonds, blue diamonds, yellow diamonds. They come in all different colours and hues. This is a grey diamond. And you see the way it's set, it's set at an angle. So it's not, a, it's not even a traditional setting. It's, uh, it's set horizontal, di diagonally. Um, it's just something different. And so this is... Well, by the end of the night, that would look very straight to him. But <laughs> <laughs> I think it, I actually think that is fantastic. And I love the fact that it's sort of throwing the usual kind of geometry of, yeah, of, of jewellery yeah. out. It's throwing it out the window yeah. kind of thing. And that's it? one that Hemmler's known for doing very sculptural works. Yeah. Um, it's curious as well though, when you look at jewellery design over, as you mentioned, you know, I guess the 50s and the 60s were the last real traditional eras when perhaps women could still wear jewellery to a dinner party or to a ball in, in perhaps a way that's less fashionable or commonplace today. But I mean, if you look at the the, the, the parallel with the motor car industry, new materials that have been used and technology yeah. and the way it's evolved and looking at this, it almost looks like it, it's a technological piece yeah. in itself. You look at manufacturers like Pagani and the types of materials they're using and of course with carbon fibre weave, yeah. they have to be mm. very careful to make sure it follows the contours of the body and you get a certain amount of symmetry. And when I look at this, I imagine, the, almost imagine the sort of couple or the, the, the person that would wear this and what they would drive. It's very contemporary in that, in that well, way. You, and you it's interesting, speaking of carbon fibre, so there's an Italian designer, um, contemporary designer called Fabio Cellini, who works a lot in carbon fibre. And he sets diamonds and pearls in carbon fibre, very dramatic pieces, big cuffs, big earrings, very statement pieces. 
but he works in carbon fiber and he'll fuse carbon fiber and pearls. So something that's very traditional um, with something that's ultra, ultra modern. Jewelry does reflect the time. So what you were saying, Peter, about maybe the 50s and 60s, they were, the, it was the last era of having those balls, those functions, those occasions. Yes, but it depends geographically where you're based. So certainly in Europe, but in Asia and the Middle East, you have the wedding season, there are still these ostentatious occasions where you absolutely can load up. Because a lot of what we're discussing today and is on display, I guess, is mostly 20th century, 21st century. And that's the era that we're dealing in, obviously, because the car wasn't around much before the start of the 20th century or the turn. Um, and, and, and when you look at those sort of art movements throughout that century and you look at the, the designs, whether it's the 20s and the 30s and you get those sort of obvious art deco styles which obviously found their way into car design but what was interesting car design it, it was also at a time where they were developing aerodynamics in a way that they felt the teardrop was the most aerodynamic shape you could find and cars were following those those lines and then obviously in the post-war you still had that glamour there were lots of big grand Rolls Royces limousines and Bentleys very much as you say, you think about the debutante balls and going to the opera. Then you get through to the 70s, the colors, yeah. the browns, the greens, the yellows. And if you go all the way through, it's amazing to me actually how those fashions almost follow each other. So what we see impacting car design, you can see through fashion. And I'm sure we'll have the same conversation in a similar way with watches when you Absolutely, look at the skeleton yeah. watches and things. Yeah. So in some way, I don't know, it, introducing different colours, you know, blue diamonds, yellow diamonds. I mean, I, I guess in the 1950s and 60s that was less. No, and they and they were they were really ignored. So coloured diamonds back in the 50s and 60s, they were the the, the things that were a byproduct of when yeah. you're looking for proper diamonds. Yeah, they they were blemished. They diamonds. were yeah. It's like oh oh, we look at look at these horrible things. We've yeah. got the where's the white diamond? Where's the white diamond? Yeah. It's fascinating now. I mean, we've yeah. seen the the price increase. And leading on, so that's now opened up into a, um, a, a diversification of portfolios for people. And you see people, there are funds, there are coloured diamond funds, um, there are jewellery funds. And so we've seen this corner of the market that's really taken off and it's been a, a recent phenomenon. Um, yeah, it, it is. I think it's really fascinating. I, and I think now with the partnership the way it is between RM Sotheby's, obviously the car side of the business and the luxury and art for that matter, we've got a really interesting opportunity ahead of us to explore that 20th century evolution in design and, 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 and perhaps that's a way of also helping us um, advise clients you know if you they may not know this sort of jewelry exists mm. in, in their world but the, the modern Pagani or modern supercar buyer I, I imagine is going to be quite attractive to that sort of um, yeah. technological tour de force in, uh, in jewellery. So Paul, the ring we were just handling, what's, what sort of value does that have? So this is one and a half million to two million US dollars. And, and obviously the, 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 the intrinsic value in that is, is the gem itself. It's a 10 carat fancy grey diamond. Yeah. And how do, um, I mean, carat, I guess you value by carrots or at least that's a starting point and then yep. quality comes into it today yellow versus blue i know we've got a fabulous selection of blue diamonds here versus you know pure white um, versus gray how do they 
how close are they in terms of their so, value? So very interesting. This is this is a 303 carat yellow diamond, and it's internally flawless. So this is the largest pear-shaped diamond ever certified by the GIA, Gemological Institute of America, who issue the certificates. Um, and it's the largest internally flawless or flawless diamond they've ever certified. Um, and wow. this is going up for sale. We're selling this in New York. This is a no reserve lot. Um, but referencing the conversation about the price, so, so the, the estimate range for this stone is 11 to 15 million US dollars, which is exactly what this five carat 53 so vivid blue diamond and so what you're saying so but they're sorry are they but similar, similar range yeah, si yeah, yeah. Sim so similar 11 yeah. 11 15 million and the blue diamond the blue diamond is about the size of a, an index fingernail um, and then the yellow diamond is obviously considerably considerably larger 15 mi 15 million well you'd probably um i mean i'm I, 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 may I may have a word with Lisa. For, Italian um, lira, I might be in the market. <laughs> so, and that's really delicately set. I mean, it's all about it the is. stone there, isn't it? It is. And the stone really is. So this is, is not about the design. It's purely about the stone. And it's about having a, an open setting. Um, I call it an honest setting, a transparent setting, in the sense that you've got the light. With coloured diamonds, it's all about the play of light. And so you want the maximum amount of colour and the saturation to come back up to you out the top of the di diamond. You don't want it to leak out the bottom of the diamond. It's, it's mm. aesthetically wasted. Yeah. This is a, a beautiful stone and you're able to, because it's such a stunning stone and the way it's been cut, it retains its colour and it brings its colour, throws its colour back up. And so you can have a very open setting with light coming in from all sides and it still looks very, very blue. And that's very um, Mediterranean, isn't it? I mean, you need to be on the back of a beautiful yacht enjoying that, I think, yeah. just, uh, well, just looking at the colour of the... So don't fall over. You just don't fall over, <laughs> yeah. Make sure it's... Uh, but t t I'm curious, so... I, you probably can't say there was a typical case, but more or less, would it be more normal to buy the, 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 the gem, the stone, and have it set, or, you know, w would somebody that's polished that stone want to influence the way that it's set. I mean, I guess they have a setting in mind when they're polishing. Yeah, and it depends It depends on the client. So very often at auction, you do find that we, we will unset the stone. Um, and for instance here, Mr. White Gloves, please. Yeah, these are loose diamonds. So in that box, there's about 70, 70 million US dollars. Um, yeah, you are. And they're Seven zero. Yeah. 70 million. So, in, I mean, in the case of, so when, when somebody buys, let's say this, Formula One car. When somebody buys something like that with us, some will know that you can go to Ferrari and have the car run for you through their course of clienti okay program. They'll know exactly what they're buying. I've opened, we're, the we're hoping I've opened the box and dislodged all the diamonds. <laughs> 70 million oh pounds no. worth of diamonds. Security. Just, I'm just, <laughs> just going to let go That's of okay. it. You're on camera as well. I can't be trusted. <laughs> Um, we can fix that. <laughs> no worries, we can fix it. The dancing diamonds. <laughs> dancing diamonds. Um, so somebody buying a car like this is going to talk to us and say, well, okay, I'm really interested, but how do I run it? How hard is it to run? How much will it cost me to run? Where do I keep it? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and when you look at diamonds like this, how much of a service within the jewelry department do you provide in saying, well, look, somebody comes, new client, has the you know the, the deep enough pockets to buy 
this, but will you then go on a journey with them or yes. will, yeah. advising them yeah. on design, etc., etc.? So it becomes a longer-term relationship yes. than just walking away with and, that. And in the, we in have the we're, we're very fortunate. We have a, similar to you guys. You guys have the relationships with Ferrari. You have the relationships with the big uh, manufacturers. We have the relationships too. And so, if someone wants something set at Cartier, then we can make the introduction and we can we can have um, ha have that. Uh, we can facilitate that. But if someone wants something set maybe in a pendant, then we can do designs. I've just sold um, a couple of white diamonds to a client, loose diamonds, um, this week, and the client has asked me to make two ring designs um, for them. They would like them set as, as rings. So we're working on that. Um, so what would happen is I will make the designs and I'll submit to him 10, 10 designs. Um, he will then whittle it down to maybe five, we'll then go more granular. Um, and then we'll whittle it down to three, and then we'll do costings, pricings, we'll find the stones, we'll source the stones. If the client has some other stones existing, we can incorporate those. But it's, 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 up to, it's definitely driven by the client. We're lending our expertise. We can do anything. That very, the very large diamond down there, now, I mean, something like that is not easy to wear, is it? You're asking the wrong person. I, I, I said to someone earlier, well, I, that could be a pinky ring. Quite literally, it could be a pinky ring. It's a statement piece. You that could set it in a tiara. You could set it as <laughs> a. Mean, could be, but well, it's yes, quite exactly. Could I be. mean, it, 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 it's some pinky. You could have ring, it in the top of your cane when you go to your white tails. Um, I, 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 could, that you do I, could. Um, I think there's a bit of a segue there into. Obviously, we were talking to Josh Pullen earlier. You know, head of the luxury division. We were talking about the way selling has evolved between live auction online and of course Sotheby's has great success in selling online as we do with cars but I think I'd like to say at least in our world and the magic of being here in this room of course you can have a view prior to an online sale and I'm sure you do but then that, that that interaction that learning from other people in the auction environment meeting people that collect and make comparing notes I think is for me invaluable and okay. I, I really do think that's an added benefit of, of being in the live auction in I mean we have the same somebody may come and say I really want to drive that on the course of Clienti program but frankly speaking if they're over 15 stone or or even over 12 stone um, and over five foot nine they probably can't yeah they won't fit in it and and, and you're not going to modify a historic car like that yeah. so there is a there is a Dif there are different dynamics to the whole process that we're all involved with that are very similar and yeah. the same I guess we're in trying on a watch yeah I mean speak about uh, about here this Geneva thing live auction um, at the watches exhibition you will see people bringing their own Geiger counter when they oh. look when they check the dials and to see if the luminous material is um, is still the original one from the I don't know 40s 50s whatever. so if it goes off the scale absolutely you know <laughs> so they bring their own Geiger counter and this is something really interesting to see because yeah. yeah, that's really... Do you mind if I d hold the, the big diamond? Yeah, just yeah, to please. To, to please, say please do. Um, <laughs> it just... I'd like to feel the weight. <laughs> well, we, had, we, we launched it, so we, we launched it in, um, in Dubai a few weeks ago, and there happened to be... It was at the Diamond Exchange in Dubai, and there happened to be um, a retired NBA uh, uh, player, um, Charles Smith. And he picked it up, he loved it, he put it in his hand, and it, it was hilarious. I said to him, I said, please don't post that, because it looked so small in his hand. It is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got yeah. an enormous it, hand. It, it, it is such an amazingly tactile thing. Oh, yeah. it's lovely. The, you know, you to feel some the weight and blood, the, wall, the, 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 yeah, way the Sorry, the temperature of it. It's, yeah. The weight yeah. is impressive, because the density of the material, so a carrot is 
1.2 grams. So this is 60 grams. Yeah. This is really... And tell me, is, is, uh, I mean, I, I bought a diamond and had it set for my wife, uh, an engagement ring. She hasn't had any other jewellery since. But anyway, <laughs> regardless of that, um, maybe today, tomorrow. He bought it in Argos. <laughs> no, but I, I really enjoyed that process. I really yeah. enjoyed selecting the stone. And, and at the time, the, the, the uh, jeweller laid them all out on the white piece of paper so that's the way you can select you know we, we traded off yeah. between the, the seas color cut clarity etc yeah. i found a, a stone which i felt comfortable with in terms of all of those three things it wasn't the perfect color but it was the shape yeah. you know as well really worked for what i had in mind um but when you're looking at stones what, I mean, what, tell me, what's the first thing you're looking for? I mean, and, and obviously putting that on a white sheet of paper isn't going to tell you very much about it. So how do you view it as a jewellery expert? What, what's the first for, thing for you're me, looking at? For it's, me, it's all about what stone resonates with you, what stone talks to you. I could line up yeah. five, five carats. I can get five stones that are all round diamonds. And on the GIA certificate, every single one of them is a 5.01 carat, 5.01, 5.01. D-colour, internally flawless, or D-flawless, all of them, and they could be identical, identical, identical. I can put them on a tray and say, right, gents, jump in, which one do you like? They're all identical. On paper, you have the certificate, they're identical. One of those stones will speak to you more than the others. And I always say to clients, the cert is important, but go with the eyes, go with the eyes. And when you look at coloured stones, you look at a ruby, maybe I prefer more of a pinky color in a ruby. Maybe my eyes see more of an orangey color. It's, it has to be something that resonates with you. Something mm. that talks to you, go with that, and then you can't go wrong. And who's to say that this, if the market says, this is what you should be buying, this is what you should be buying. You're wearing it, you're giving it as a gift. Well, it should and be, we, buy we, what, what you like. Exactly, this is what and I always because, sense, you know, cars are no different from any other collectible, you know, and we live in a market and a world where there are people that are buying, you know, in, with cars, you, you're going to buy a car because you want to drive it. Mm. Uh, racing cars, a lot of racing cars are sold because people literally want to go out and race them. Um, you know, they're not ornaments. They're not, you know, you're buying it just because it's what you've always wanted. And then, of course, we're also in a market where people are buying cars because they you know, they're never going to drive them, they're going to put them somewhere, they're going to store them, and frankly, they're just hoping that it's going to go up in value. Do you think that, that, that gems, that we're given that's what we're talking about at the moment, I mean, do, do, can you say with any degree of authority that um, if I were to buy that in 10 years from now, it's going to be worth more than I pay for it today? Or, or I mean, how does, how, you know? So we, we can, with certainty, we can look backwards. Yeah. Um, and so we look back to how things track. So for example, this five carat 53 that we have in tomorrow for 11 million to 15 million, a five carat sold in 2017, I think it was, um, for six million. You can kind of compare uh, like for like. Um, and obviously, every, certainly with colored diamonds, there's always something different. A, a vivid blue is, if you line up three vivid blues, one will be slightly more saturated, one will be slightly lighter, one, there's always, there are more differences between colored diamonds than there are between two D-color white diamonds, for instance. Okay. But, as a rule of thumb, have colored diamonds, certainly at this level of the market, have colored diamonds increased massively, massively, yeah. and that's why it's become yeah. an investment um, yeah. vehicle for a lot of a lot of people rightly or wrongly and you know you can have your a purist and a collector you can you can have your opinion on that 
But if you look back to 2001, 2002, and you look back to prices now, have they changed? Have they gone north? Yes. We, we sold a Mercedes 300 SLR Uhlenhaut Coupe earlier this year, uh, one of two cars that have ever existed, and it completely changed the landscape for car collecting, well, values. Because up, up until that moment, you know, the most valuable car in the world was 50 odd million dollars. Uh, you know, uh, a Ferrari 250 GTO. Now, interestingly, when we sold the Uhlenhaut Coupe, the opening bid was more than the most valuable car previously sold at auction. So we opened the bidding at 50 odd million, 50 million, and the car sold for 135 million. Now, one of the, in the broader context of the collecting world, what that did was overnight put a car in the top 10 most valuable objects, things ever sold at auction. Put it in at number eight, eight. Uh, in, a, in a top 10 that is entirely dominated by artworks. Um, I mean, I've just handled a box uh, with, with a few gems in which uh, in itself. Even fewer now after you drop. Uh, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll, don't get the hoover out, anyone, the, the vacuum. Will, will, but, um, uh, you know, the contents of that box are more valuable than a Ferrari 250 GTO. You know, it's, it's sta if, if you're in the car world, that's staggering. Yeah. Just quickly, because people are fascinated by this, I mean, I'm putting you on the spot slightly. I mean, what is the most expensive gemstone ever sold, single gemstone? It would be a, a red diamond, would be up. Um, and not necessarily at auction. So at auction, we can research. We can, we can give that. I don't know it off yeah. the top of my head. Okay. But um, red diamonds are the rarest color of diamonds. And the largest red diamond in the world is 5 carat 11 which is tiny. I mean, this, this ring here is 5 carat 53. The, the blue diamond ring is 5 carat 53. The gray diamond is 10 carats. Um, largest red diamond in the world, 5 carat 11. So wow. the price... It's, it's funny that you consider 5 carat as tiny. But that's a, that's a different <laughs> conversation. I mean, well, we have 300 yeah, here. Yeah, Five's yeah. tiny. I'm fascinated because I know, you know, I'm learning here. So, uh, I mean, a red diamond's only found in a particular part of the world. So this was found in Brazil. In Brazil, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and recently, and in the 90s. Okay. Um, but this yellow diamond, this was unearthed in the 80s. It was found in the DRC by a, a, a girl who was playing behind her house and saw this uh, yellow rock and said, "Oh, what's this?" Gave it to her uncle. It was a rough diamond. Her uncle sold it, and then. Yield is this 890 carat rock diamond. I think this conversation needs a part two, doesn't it? Really, because <laughs> it's so it, it is yeah, fascinating. Yeah. It's I mean, fascinating. It's nice and it, it's, it's, I find it interesting because auction talks a lot about the provenance of stones yeah. and how stones are formed deep in the Earth's crust. There are so many more facets, no pun intended, that are just fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. And just quickly, if that red diamond, if somebody brought that to you and said, okay, Paul, just, you know, let's, let's take it to auction, put an estimate on it. I mean, where would you even You'd start? You'd have to be a Ferrari owner first, wouldn't We're, you? We, we, like, we like to take things uh, inexpensively. Um, <laughs> but auction, I've, I mean, I was working recently on a, on a red diamond, private sale of red diamond, and uh, it was round about a five carat. Um, and the asking price, and again, asking price is an asking, asking price, but the starting off asking price was in the region of 100 million US dollars. 
Holy smoke. Okay, so interesting. Interesting. So we could see we could see a diamond enter that top the echelons could of that be the most top, valuable top, 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 thing ever sold. Yeah. Because it's you know I, I guess it's like with the cars. It's okay. Here we are. This is the one piece. Find me another one. Let's move on to the world of watches. We're here at a uh, in a room full of uh, of gems and watches, and we have the car. Yeah. And the reason you've selected that watch from the ca the whole catalogue is that there's a bit of a car-related uh, Actually, it's a connection here. Even a little bit more than a bit. A so bit, yes. I'm headed Let, over to you guys. Yes. Um, and it's a big watch, so again, for, watch. For, for listeners, it's a, a big, sort of, um, quite angular uh, watch, um, sort of very, quite industrial looking, would be fair to say, it isn't is. it? With a, with it a, is. With a, it's gold, it's got a black bezel and a, and a, and a black leather strap, uh, it's a big thing. I'm pretty sure you've seen the design before. So this yes. is one of the most mm -hmm. iconic designs we have in the watch industry. It's uh, the Royal Oak by Audemars Piguet. Uh, launched in 1972. This year is the 50th anniversary of, of, of this model. Um, this is an offshore model and it came out in 2006, a limited edition Rubens Barrichello. And that's now the link to this car, which is actually really nice that we have it here. Um, it's limited to 500 pieces. This is the prototype. So you would see a tiny number on the back, PR01, so prototype 01. This is a watch that was never made for the market, never made for sale. Um, it was the pre-series model, just to see how the watch looks and if the, if the clients would like it, um, like a display model yeah. of, of, this, of this watch. Um, it's made in stainless steel. The actual model is in rose gold. This one is stainless steel and then gold plated. Um, yeah, and as I said, Rubens Barrichello. And back in those days, this Michael Schumacher was driving the car. Rubens Barrichello was his was team. his teammate. Was exactly his teammate. so. So this yeah. is, I think, whoever is interested in the in this car should consider the watch. Could you? Yeah, because well, that's the a conversation that needs to be had tomorrow. With the yes, absolutely. The price tag is not as high as with the car. So <laughs> here we are talking about starting price of hundred thousand um, Swiss francs. Um, yeah, but it's a super interesting. <gasps> and of course. Sorry. Yeah, no. No, it, no, no, no. I mean, I, I, because when you did briefly tell me about this yeah. watch earlier, I said to you, "Oh, well, that's interesting." But it, it so there's there's no precious metal in there. It's stainless steel. I mean, actually, uh, tiny pieces like the crown is in rose gold, okay. and also also the clasp here on on the back, because they took this probably from from another model that yeah. they had. But the case, as you as you said, the case is in stainless steel. And is the bezel ceramic? Yes, it's, it's a ceramic bezel. And um, you can see from the side, it's really nicely made to... Um, yeah. It looks a little bit like skeletonized to save material. And this is something you would do with a race car too, to have it as light as possible. For a watch, it's not necessary to have it light. But this was made just to, to show what is technically possible. And you can see a similar effect on the dial. You have a, um, a semi-skeletonized dial where you can see the movement through. And so the point is, is that although uh, its material uh, value, in, in the sense that it's not solid yeah. gold, um, is less than one of the production watches. Absolutely. The pure fact that this is a one-off pre-production prototype, yeah. or, uh, let's call it, um, clearly makes this, uh, of, of this series of 500 watches, 500. this is the one to have. This is a, this is a unique piece. And so is it, in fact, is that the 501st? No, it's like, it's, like it, zero because after zero. that, after uh, that yes, came number one. Okay. So yeah, I, yeah. I would say okay. it's, it's zero. And we have a letter by Audemars Piguet 
where they confirmed that this is a prototype watch that was never made to be sold. There is uh, an inextricable connection between the world of watches and the world of cars yes, in, the, yes. in the sense that in, in, and that manifests itself, I think, in two different ways. We know for sure that people that buy cars also, a, a lot of those collectors do also collect watches, even if they collect no, nothing else. Quite often in, in motoring media, the, the dedicated motoring media won't tackle very many other subjects other beyond cars, but the one topic that they do tend to cover is watches, yeah. which, which says an awful lot about that connection between you know, watch collecting and car collecting. And then of course the other way in which that relationship manifests itself is that we see the likes of Tag and Schuppard and um, uh, uh, Rolex and, and plenty of other watch brands as well have built quite big marketing campaigns around their relationship yeah. with cars and Formula One teams and, and, and all sorts. Why do you think that is? I mean, why do you think that there is that, that, that connection between the car world and the watch world? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure, but it, it might be because watches are quite technical usually. So, and um, what, what we realize is that people are asking for that. People are asking more and more questions about the technical details of the watches, like the, the power reserve, we had the conversation before, um, about complications and, and everything. And I personally find it super interesting to see how much technique is in a small, tiny piece like yeah, that. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah. So this is not one of the super complicated watches, but still it's absolutely stunning to see what is technically possible. So that might be the reason. I think, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And, and I think, well, firstly, motor racing is about going quick and you know how quick you're going if you have an accurate time yeah. base. You've got a time base. I mean, yeah. there's almost yeah. a natural yeah. link for that reason. Unless, you know, you tend to take so long, you could sundial. On a, Use a sundial to time uh, it. Yeah, and that, and that, you can <laughs> the date changes by the time Peter finishes the race. But anyway. As a car person, I love watches too, but I think we just love, I love hi-fi, you know, vinyl. Yeah. I, I love the engagement with the object, the keeping it perfectly balanced, keeping it perfectly perfectly set. Um, but the one you're displaying as well, it has that feeling of a, of a sports watch yeah. with, you know, the look of, a, of a materials that are precious metals. Yeah. But still watches seem to be um, much more collectible, or is that just because the price point is broader? I, I don't think it's about the price point. Sometimes, sometimes a steel watch would even be more expensive because it's because it's more thought after. Not in the primary market, but maybe done on the secondary market. Um, maybe it's because of the material. Stainless steel is quite, quite um, robust, quite, yeah. quite hard wearing. Hard, hard wearing, yeah. yeah. So, and uh, precious metals like gold. Gold is super soft. So that might be a reason. Um, and usually people who are collecting watches want to wear them. So mm. whenever you wear it, you get tiny scratches on it and so on. And um, this would happen more likely with a precious metal watch. Than they, they, they get, they get, I think the term is tool watches, isn't yeah. it? You yeah. know, they, yeah. they get described yeah. as tool watches. Yeah. And, and what, what's interesting, you know, the thing is with the Ferrari and what makes that car uh, not necessarily more valuable, but very appealing is that that engine has been completely rebuilt by the Ferrari factory. Mm. And a Formula One engine, you can only run those engines for a few hours before they have to re be rebuilt again. Mm -hmm. Because you've got to remember that one of those engines is, is only really designed to last for the duration of one race, a couple of hours, okay. really. Mechanical watches, and, and 
and that, that is why I like clear case backs because it is wonderful to look at the movement I, of a watch. I was about to mention that before. Nobody needs a clear case back from, no. from wearing the watch, but we like it because then we can see the movement, because we can we see can the see, engine. It is astonishing what can be crammed into a watch case, isn't it? Yeah. And the miniaturization and the fact that these things, you know, unlike the life of a Formula One engine, mm. they just go on and on Absolutely. and on. I have a not very valuable mechanical hand-wound watch on my wrist that belonged to my grandfather. And I can tell you, it has n I think it dates from the 50s, it has never been serviced. Mm. Never been serviced and I wind it and it keeps almost perfect time. Yeah. And I find that absolutely astonishing because cars are not that reliable. Yeah. But you should get it serviced. I know I should. Right. You should <laughs> get it some point. Um, although because the, the service would cost more than the value of the watch. But that yes. might be that. But <laughs> yeah, if, if you like the watch, you should consider yes, I, doing I, that. As well as bringing um, the watch, you bought a rather interesting and, and quite ornate, shall we say, what, uh, clock. Tell us a little bit about that. So this is a dome clock by Patek Philippe, um, made in uh, 1989. It is beautifully made with this animal work um, around it. Um, and Patek Philippe is not only, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm putting it back on the yep. table because, because it's quite heavy actually. It's made of gilt. Um, Patek Philippe is also known for making these dome clocks. The series are super small, so they're quite rare on the market. And this is a unique piece. And the story behind this is quite interesting. And that's again a link to you guys, to the, to the car world. Um, you can see the Bentley logo on top of it. So this comes from a client who um, is a passionate race car driver. He, he drives a Bentley from 1922. No, 1929, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know the model, you're more an expert in, in, in that. And his wife had made this watch for him as a gift. So she got in contact with Patek Philippe and brought a picture, a photograph, and was like, I want to have this car on the clock. So they made it from this, from this picture. And we are offering this clock now with um, the photograph, with the guy in his car, with all the paperwork of the, uh, of the clock, and even with the original drawings by Patek Philippe. That's fabulous. And that's quite interesting, because usually this would, these would always stay in the, in the archives. So yeah. this is not for the public, but she, uh, the guy told us, she insisted in taking this home and they were like, no, it's not possible. And she was like, yeah, then I will not buy the, the clock. <laughs> so like, okay, then take it. So now we have it. And this is what is really a, a, a full set. So we have the clock, we have the box, we have the paperwork, we have the drawings, and we have the photograph of the, of the previous that owner. astonishing. And that's being offered for sale from the original Absolutely. So it's, it's, yeah, so it comes from first hand. And um, what is also interesting about the clock itself, it, um, that it's, you can see it here on the back. A solar, solar panel. Solar panel. Exactly, so this is a quartz movement and it's driven by the solar panel. And um, it is a beautiful desk clock for any car enthusiast. And that's, yeah. really, that's really interesting because, you know, it, this is, a, this is a, a, a manufacturer that has really built its reputation on mechanical movements. Yes. And for this, they've gone, they've gone with a quartz. Oh, I mean, I, I dare say you, you can't really possibly know, but why do you think they went for a quartz, that, that the solar-powered quartz movement rather yeah. than the mechanical movement? Um, Patek Philippe is also known for trying out things like, like that, and they invented that in the, in the 70s. So that's really early, considering yeah. using a technology like that. And maybe that's the reason why they still do it. We'll finish up now, but I, we probably can't not talk briefly about Rolex, because um, they're so... Uh, synonymous with motorsport. In yeah. fact, we're we're doing a, a, a sale in 
uh, June next year, which is the 100th anniversary of the Le Mans race. Mm -hmm. And Rolex is the timing partner for, for, um, for, for Le Mans. And we uh, possibly might try and find a couple of timepieces that we can throw in with that auction. Why do you think that the Rolex brand has developed this kind of incredible global uh, glow it, it is instantly the most globally recognized yeah. watch Should brand be. isn't it why do you think that is I mean is that just is that because the watches are simply magnificent is that is that the 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 wonder of marketing over anything else I uh, think actually I think it's it's two reasons the first is quality Rolex is not known for making the most high-end watches when it comes to complications. But what they do, they do in the, in the absolutely highest quality. Um, I think that's reason number one. Without that, it would not work. And then it's marketing, I absolutely agree. Yeah. 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 From the very beginning on, they did fantastic marketing. Yeah. Thank you, Philip. Uh, thank you, Paul. That's been absolutely fascinating. And I'm, n I'm never going to be, uh, well, I certainly I'm never gonna be standing anywhere acquiring any gems of that value so it's been actually a real privilege for you to get these out of the cabinets yeah, and amazing and and, and 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 let us handle them that's been amazing so thank you very much you. and welcome. i think we're going to have to wrap wrap it up there um but uh, thank you everyone at home whether you're watching or listening to the rm sotheby's car show and i hope you found it as interesting as I have. I've learned a lot. And please join us for the next episode. Uh, you can download the podcast in the place where you always get your podcasts. So thank you. We'll see you next time.